Ian Reith. And I'm Kyle Thompson. And you're listening to General Intellect Unit, and we are back with the third and final part of our series, Reading Entangled Life by Marlon Sheldrake. This is good fun. Uh, these back couple of chapters um, are really interesting, um, and it, it's been fun being on this weird fungal journey, hasn't it? You know? Yeah, I... I um... I've been really impressed with all of the things we read in here. Actually, I uh, had a couple interesting stories. One was that um, in uh, Chapter 6, uh, Wood Wide Webs, uh, they describe how, what is it, some plants will secrete uh, a uh, info, what do they call it, like an info info chemical that attracts wasps to protect them from like aphids and other predators right like uh and actually when i was visiting my mom last week uh i saw this in action um in my mom's garden uh there was yeah, there was a plant there that that had sort of like an open weeping wound that it seemed like the wasps had inflect, inflicted on the plant. Um, but the plant seemed fine at the same time, like it was healthy, even though it was weeping. Um, and the wasps were just like all over it. And we were, we were like, what the hell is going on here? Like, are the wasps like attacking the plant? And then I read this chapter and I was like, wait, no, <laughs> actually what's happening is that the plant is getting the wasps to protect it from predators or like parasites and stuff. Right. So that's like that. That was so weird to have like that sync up in in, in real time like that. <laughs> uh, Sent my mom an email as soon as I got back home. I was like, hey, I figured out what that was about. Um but there were a lot of wasps in that garden, so it was a little bit, a little bit, a little bit scary, you know. Um, but you know, we're we're all good. Uh, and the the other thing is, uh, before we started reading this, um, there was a like mushroom art exhibit slash, uh, kind of like pop up market deal that happened in Calgary in the summer and I went there and I got this like mushroom coffee that had like it, it's it's like coffee combined with like various uh powdered uh mushrooms <laughs> and and uh yeah I just I'm just drinking some right now because I was like I'm gonna save this for like the the last recording of this mushroom show because uh yeah no it was really it was really interesting because you had some of those like amateur mycologists there and and then also like people who were doing like mushroom art, like we bought this mushroom mug there uh, that's really cool that was done by a, a local potter. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think uh, it's it's been I think as for like many other people, it's been a really interesting intro to the subject of mycology and I'm definitely planning on sending one of these to my dad, who's a botanist, like sending the book to my dad, who's a botanist, because I'm sure he would get a kick out of all of this. Like, it would be super interesting to him, even though he's like mainly interested in grass. I'm sure there's like an angle at which he would be interested in in uh, in fungi. Yeah. Well, yeah. Right. Yeah, totally. Right. Because like, I mean, as as the uh, 
as, as our chapter six kind of gets into, like, the, the, the grass is probably tied together in a big distributed network with the fungi, right? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, no, I was just thinking, like, the other day, like, I was at, uh, I was down in, by this lake um, in BC near, uh, near my hometown, and, you know, my, uh, my mom lives in, like, this desert area, like, most of the plant are like uh uh shrubs or um uh cacti uh succulents of various kinds tons and tons of cacti everywhere right um like not the big ones like you get down in the u.s but just like little ones um like like uh prickly pears and that kind of stuff uh the ones that get on your get through your shoes and oh no <laughs> it's, oh, it's no. quite unpleasant but <laughs> but there's anyway there's a lake uh oh god yeah i have like so much like climate horror to describe but for but for my trip out to bc this year (laughs) yeah yeah uh but like essentially there's a lake uh that is in this desert area um fairly near to where my my mom lives and uh uh there's a park in the the town of uh savannah next to the lake um, and in that park, there are these huge deciduous trees, like, like truly like old growth. They must be old growth trees. Like, um, I think they were oaks, I want to say. Um, but there's just, so there's, there's, there's one big one. And then there's like, uh, essentially, I, I don't know how I would describe it. Like a... There's like a kind of like a trio uh, or like a triad of three huge trees that have grown together. Um, Like they're all bunched up. I shared this in the GIU chat, but uh, um, uh, yeah, I was just thinking about how like, you know, after reading the tree book and then reading Entangled Life, I was like, yeah, like these trees must probably, like these these three trees are probably actually all grafted together because they're right next to each other and like are enormous. So they have like huge root systems, right? Um, and, and surely they've become like one organism at this point, right? Um, both through the, the fungi and also the grafting that we talked about in tree stories. Um, and that was just super interesting because it's like it's really interesting to see kind of enormous examples like that um, that are so mature. But also um, like these were like basically like a maybe a five, six story building is about the size that you're talking about here. These trees. Um, but it's also like kind of the only place of like. I don't know, shelter or comfort in that whole like desert area in the summer. Cause it like, it gets so hot. Everything's so arid and harsh and dusty. And, 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 and it's like, you go down by this tree and it's like, you're in this microclimate that's been produced by these trees. And like my, my, uh, my mom and, uh, uh, and her partner, they go there in the summer all the time when it's like super hot, like over 40 degrees heat, um, just to like exist. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and it's like, yeah, this is all made possible by these things, these dynamics, these, 
these didactics that we've been talking about um, in these these two books. And I think that like, yeah, this stuff is is definitely only becoming more important because when I was up in the like, you know, I, I was up in the Rockies traveling through the Rockies from Alberta to British Columbia from east to west. Um, and, you know, the last time I was really seriously up in the Banff area, which is like that really famous tourist area, uh, that everybody gets images of, um, for like tourism promotions for Canada. Um, there were still like glaciers around the town of Banff, like fairly sizable glaciers, but, this time I went up there and in the Banff area, all the glaciers were gone, completely, completely gone. Um, uh, and at, at the very highest areas, there were still glaciers left. But when we came down the west side of the pass to where there were still glaciers left, all the glaciers were like filthy. They were just covered in ash because of all the forest fires. So that, that I believe is the reason that the glaciers disappeared in the other areas is because in addition to the high temperatures, which, you know, we had like the heat dome go through there where they had like super high temperatures, even at high elevations. Um, uh, the ash covers the glacier, it lowers the albedo, the reflective quality of the ice, and that means it sinks more heat and, and increases the amount of melt. And then the glacier just gets into like a, uh, like a cascade of, uh, melting because it's like once you have more melt, then the melt water will like get under the glacier and start to melt the, the bottom as well as the top. Right. Um, and that has just like eliminated glaciers from areas. My entire life, I cannot remember not seeing them there. Like they will never come back in our lifetimes. I guarantee it. Uh, because like there will be like prodigious amounts of snow over the winter, but it's not going to form a glacier. It will melt in the summer. Um, and, and yeah. And then just even coming like, you know, past there further West into the interior of British Columbia, it was like, you know, we were driving at night. There was tons of smoke. It was, it was hard to breathe. And then it was just like, you know, we were driving along the highway and you could see the forest fires up on the mountain ridges, just like burning, like ominously in the darkness. <laughs> and and the the river. So this is connected to the, the, the glacier uh, issue that I was talking about. The river, the Thompson River that runs through Kamloops, my my hometown which is enormous. Like it's, it's like, I think the largest tributary of the Fraser river, which is one of the largest rivers in North America. Um, it, it was, the water was so low in the river that like there were sandbars appearing in the middle of the river. And 
there were sections of the river where the water level was so low that there was like kind of just a stream going through the 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 riverbed and that's all that was left you know it was like the river was like a danger of becoming a lake you know because <laughs> right. the water level was getting so low and it's like the amount of water that would normally in the past have flowed through there is like unfathomable amounts of liters and, and liters and liters and liters of water. And so like as the glacial melt, you know, becomes more severe, then yeah, like these water like these rivers are going to be less and less glacier fed and more and more just you know a feature of like the rainfall um and initial snow melt in the spring right and so it's like massive water uh supply issues and also just like heat issues and you know tons and tons of trees this summer uh in that area died from either uh sudden temperature changes or from uh extreme heat or from uh uh the smoke meaning that they were just not getting enough light um so uh it's really only the strongest trees that survived uh the summer and you know those big trees i was talking about were like the one like were were fine because they had such an enormous root system and you know such an enormous canopy and they created their own microclimate and it's like people are going around cutting down old growth trees <laughs> in british columbia all the time like it's a runaway problem and it's like these trees are, you know, yes, they're gold in terms of carpentry and stuff, but like they're gold in terms of like ecosystem survival and resilience as well in a way that like nobody seems to understand despite it being blatantly obvious in the extremes of climate that we are facing right now. You know, it's like like what are they thinking you know there's just like it's like we could just we could just plant new trees it's like no you fucking can't what are you talking about like if you go to a clear-cut zone in the climate that we have now and plant a bunch of saplings like they're not gonna make it are you kidding me <laughs> they're gonna die from the drought or you know the uh the wind or whatever it, it is you know there's so many uh hostile factors yeah well what a, what a novel concept right it was like what about the, the the author here and the author of tree stories are both imploring us to do is to look at these things as like living systems you know and not not just like collections of inanimate objects just standing around in a field you know um, yeah, yeah, but you know what Heidegger literally called the standing reserve, right? Is it, it's just like everything just exists to be used. Yeah, um, um, it's real fun, you know, watch, watching a feedback loop turn into a feedback noose in front of your eyes, and nobody else seems to realize it. <laughs> 
Well, people are upset. I will tell you that people are like people are more upset there than they are here in Alberta because it's it's worse there. It's a lot worse there. Like it, it is. Yeah, there's way more forest there to burn. The water supply is not as steady. You know, it's already very hot there. Um, it, you know, people are upset and concerned. I don't think it's a matter of like people not recognizing there's a crisis. Um, like even like, you know, watering your lawn was banned in, in Kamloops, uh, over the summer. So yeah, I, 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 I think, you know, there's less of a head in the sand situation there than, um, I would see here, for instance, or, you know, uh, in Europe, right. Where it's like, or in Northern Europe, I should say, where it's like, like, yeah, things are really weird, but they're not threatening per se, right? Uh, you know, in Southern Europe, it's like, holy shit, things are bad. But in the North, it's kind of like, wow, this is strange. But people aren't like panicking, you know? Um, so it, it does depend where you are. Um, but I, I again, I, I don't think that matters to like forestry multinationals very much. Oh God, no. No, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, let's let's dive into chapter six, Wood Wide Webs. Um, this is a really interesting chapter because it goes over the, um, I think, a fairly widely acknowledged notion that, um, uh, you know, wood uh, forests and, you know, large collect collections of plants are kind of linked underground by root networks and by fungal networks, um, these shared mycorrhizal networks. But the interesting thing here is that the author takes, like, the fungal perspective as like trying to explain why why all this might happen whereas um it's usually the case that like people approach this from the trees perspective of like okay what would what would trees get out of this arrangement and how would they how would trees communicate with each other looking at it from the fungal perspective reveals a bit more and seems to i think offer more sensible explanations as to what's going on yeah yeah it's like instead of looking at trees as the actors who are connected to each other like directly you think about the fungi as kind of like um managers or uh uh brokers who exist in between these trees and will like allocate resources in order to uh ensure that they have as many sources of re uh, of of nutrients uh as possible uh and in that way sort of tending the forest garden in a way yeah that's that's the impression i got really is that um if you take the fungal perspective it looks more like the trees are livestock that is kept by the fungi <laughs> you know as opposed to the trees the trees being the primary um, agents that are involved but yeah the chapter gets into a lot of this stuff of like um initially posing the problem right because the, the the first thing we're introduced to here is this um uh, plant uh, this flower uh, monotropa uniflora which is uh, a ghostly white color because it just doesn't have any ability to photosynthesize at all anymore and so it's a um what's the term used here mycoheterotroph i think is the term used for organisms that uh 
get, they get their supply of carbons and sugars through a mycorrhizal network from other plants. And so this kind of immediately raises the question of like, fucking, like, why? Like, how, how does this fucking work? Like, by what, me- like, firstly, by what mechanism are they getting any of their food? And then also, like, why? Like, wh- what are they exchanging? What's the reason for it? I, I think maybe, like, it's, um, the, the author kind of gets into a lot of this stuff, like, of, um, how nutrients move around in these networks and, like, what might be going on under the soil. And it's like, I don't know, maybe maybe these ones are just pets, <laughs> is my kind of take. That, like, <laughs> it's, it's the same reason I keep a fish in the house. And it's like, it's not, it's not doing anything for me, but, like, I still feed it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it, it's really hard to say, like, what they what they supply to anyone else. Uh, it, it, yeah, it is kind of like keeping a house cat, you know? It's like, <laughs> does it contribute much of anything to the economy of the house? But it's nice to have around, you know? <laughs> I think... I think also this was the plant that the author was considering way back in the first chapters when he was trying to figure out, like, okay, what would it feel like to be a fungus, you know? And, like, why would you partner up with this um, weird plant that doesn't seem to do anything? And then he he kind of intuited that it might have something to do with shelter, that, like, um, having a docking station in those roots might be... It it could even be a fucking warehouse. They just store carbon in there to move somewhere else, you know what I mean? Um... Yes, yes. Well, and it, it, it's it's very funny because it's like, you know, does this plant necessarily perform those functions better than other plants in the area? Maybe, but like, we don't really know, right? <laughs> yeah, which I guess is something that the author does kind of bring up a fair bit. It's not like it's, it's super difficult to study any of these things. Um... And it, it's hard to get a sense of what's actually going on. And part of it is, like, the restrictions of our kind of mental models of, like, how we approach things. Um, and that, like, we, do, we need to try to approach things, like, from the fungal perspective. Try to under, maybe try to understand them on their own terms, as, as difficult as that is, because it's really hard to take an inhuman perspective on things. Yes, yes, yeah, no, yeah, we need to, yeah, we need to think through metaphors and um, concepts uh, in order to better understand how these things might behave. One of the common themes that's raised a lot in this chapter is um, the notion of this, these being very big collaborative networks and, like, mutual aid, um, that there's a, a kind of huge, like, wood-spanning community uh, that's doing a kind of... <laughs> the kind of dynamic semi-planned economy that we're, we're sort of uh, qu- quite fond of on this show, right? Um it's a it's a kind of socialism of the soil, perhaps, or maybe, maybe it's uh, you know completely deregulated Thatcherite fucking markets that's going on under the soil. You know, it's like <laughs> yeah, it can be pretty hard to work out what's happening. Yes, uh, yeah, it is. It is. Uh, it is very difficult because you're sort of working by way of like metaphor and analogy, and and. And the the metaphors or analogies you choose to think with are going to color the way that you're observing the phenomenon and like categorizing it. Um, yeah, so uh, that is only aggravated as an issue by how difficult it is to track 
activity within these systems, right? Right. Yeah, there's some there's some good stuff here about like um, experiments to like inject radioactive dyes into trees and see where they end up. Um, and like, but even then, it, it's 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 still it's a difficult thing to do to try and track all this kind of stuff. And like, you know, some folks would try to map out as best as they could map out like a network, like in, you know, in the network science kind of sense of like the network of this, like couple of square meters of uh, a forest, you know, like identify all the plants involved, identify all the fungi involved. And even that's a colossal amount of work. And it's still only giving you a partial representation of the, this part of the network. Um, yeah, because there could be sort of like, you know, like the, um, the kind of like, uh, intercontinental like internet trunk lines that are running through these networks that like you can't really observe if you are looking at uh, a, a little plot of the forest um, like these sort of these like long distance uh, high bandwidth connections um, that might be sort of imperceptible if you are only looking at like one you know uh I guess like 500, you know, meters squared of forest or whatever. Right. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, there's some, I, I, I kind of appreciate it here. The, um, bit of variation on like, um, you know, there's, there's some experimental kind of confirmation for this, this idea. And there's, there's also some folks that have kind of failed to replicate, um, much of anything. And there seems to be a kind of debate, um, going on that like, if if these shared mycorrhizal ex networks exist, like okay, fine, but like, are they like decisive? Are they of decisive importance to the plants? Um, and like, if if they if they were, like, what what would it mean for them to be of decisive importance? Well, like, they would have to enable forms of life or arrangements of life that weren't possible otherwise. And the author then presents like the my mycoheterotrophs as that kind of evidence because like according to the author like up to about 10 percent of plant species are like this where they don't actually photosynthesize they get their they get their carbon their sugars and their nutrients from other plants via the network which is that's pretty intense right like it would be it would be weird because like i think if, if there was just one or two species that were kind of fucked up and weird that would be one thing but if like 10 percent of the plants in a forest are like this something has to be going on. Yeah, absolutely. Like it must be fit in an evolutionary sense in some way uh, for that many plants to follow this pattern of evolution. Yeah, I mean, even examples like orchids are kind of like this. Or, well, the, the author gets into a lot of these variations of like, you know, the, the ghost flowers, they're like this constantly. That's fine. Orchids... Are they don't they don't contribute anything in their in their youth, but then they start contributing later. Um, there's differentials in like even amongst like I don't know spruce trees or whatever. There's differentials in like healthy individuals and sick individuals, or like very large ones contribute in overabundance. Um, overall, it kind of seems like resources seem to flow downhill, like like things generally do in the universe. Right, like energy flows from high concentration to low concentration and it tends to even out yeah like from the sun to everywhere on earth right to everything else yeah so resources seem to be evened out in the network but it's it's happening faster than 
just passive diffusion would allow for, and seems to be more directed than just diffusion. Um, which brings us back to that notion that maybe the fungi are deliberately... I mean, it, it kind of touches on the thing from the previous chapter, or I guess the thing we talked about last time, that like, if the fungi seem to be doing a buy low, sell high kind of strategy, or what they're doing is they're deliberately evening out resources that like they're they're doing communist planning you know yeah <laughs> yeah, the, yeah 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 <laughs> the fucking what's that book that tom is obsessed with you know the um, the fundamental principles of communist yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> economics they're just they're just yeah. doing that in the soil right like um equalizing resources across uh, disparate productions that's that's a plausible model for what's happening. In which case, like, these, like, mycoheterotrophs, like, might not actually be contributing much of anything, but they could be, uh, they could just be sort of, like, tapping into the network and, like, kind of, like, siphoning off the excess, uh, like, just, you know, like, like, uh, like people who are, uh, uh, you know, tapping into power lines and stealing electricity from the grid, right? Like, th that is a thing that happens all the time. And, uh, you know, there's no reason plants couldn't do the same thing necessarily. Right. And it, it kind of brings us to a lot of this discussion of, like, these very complex collaborations that are going on between species. And, like, there's some really interesting possibilities that are raised here. Like, um, it's one one that really jumped out at me was, like, that Matsutake mushrooms tend to associate very closely with these candy cane um, monotropa that have this red and white stripe to them. Like, they don't, they don't have any green, but they have this weird red and white stripe. And you've got to then ask, okay, why would it be fit for there to be a close association through the network between these two kinds of... Um, between this fungi and this kind of... Um, this kind of plant that doesn't seem to be contributing a whole lot. Like, what, what would the fungus get out of this association? But if we go back to, like, the, one of the earliest chapters about lures and allure, right? Matsutake mushrooms, they're, um, they're a truffle, right? Like, they, they really want to be dug up and eaten. So what better way to do that than to advertise your fucking presence with a red and white striped sign right <laughs> yeah, above you? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yes, exactly. Isn't that fascinating, right? That, like... The author does mention that, like, perhaps one of the benefits that is gained here is that it kind of frees up evolution, right? That, like, if a plant is freed from the burden of producing its own food, it can evolve in whatever bizarro aesthetic direction it wants to. And, okay, that's fine. It's it's cool art school kind of shit for the, for the plant. But, like, that then weirdly is of benefit to the fungus to have these weirdly aesthetic looking plants above ground that indicate their own presence. That's an incredible kind of collaboration across species. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure, 100%. Um, yeah, it's very, uh, you know, it's very um, uh, much like the, uh, um, the, like, peacock, male peacock feathers, right? Um, like, ma massively impractical, but extremely useful for them. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, it makes, right, so like for, for the peacocks, it makes sense to direct energy and resources into growing this thing that is attractive and that is fit in an indirect kind of way. Um, and like, yeah, so the, the, the candy cane fucking plants are like the peacock feathers 
but done done through a um, through a surrogate, right? It's it's really incredible, and that's just one relationship we can pick out, right? What if all of the relationships between all of the plants and all of the fungi, and then all all of them to everyone else? What if they're all that complex? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, exactly. And like, you know, some of them can be uh, obvious to us in a sense because, like, you know, they advertise themselves, and others are are certainly more subtle. Um, but there's there's so much to be learned. There's so much to be studied. Um, because, uh, you know, as they go on and on about in this book, it's like these, these, uh, uh, mycorrhizal networks, they kind of develop, you know, I think this is, this is in a sense, not, it's not exhaustive, but it is kind of, I think what, um, you know, the term, uh, terroir, uh, from French is referring to. When they talk about how, like, oh, like, you know, if you want to make this kind of wine, you got to grow it on this territory, on this, on this, uh, on this land in particular. And there, yes, there are the climatic conditions, like maybe that, you know, like when we were talking in tree stories about how there was like that one really specific mountain range, which was like so austere that it produced the longest living trees in the world. Um there is that climatic dimension, but there's also a good chance that there's like a very particular mycorrhizal network that has grown in that area um, and is contributing to the flavor of the grapes and the wine in a way that cannot be reproduced simply through like agricultural arrangements. Um, uh so, yeah, like, I think that because this kind of, like, terroir exists for mycorrhizal networks, like, there's an enormous variety of phenomena to discover and study because there is, like, so much local variation. Um, and it is uh, kind of, like, um, like, they're, they're all complex, complex systems, like, highly complex systems. Um, in the sense that they can't really be reproduced in a laboratory. Um, uh, yeah, like they, they kind of all require each other. It's like to, yeah, what is it like to, you know, like to build a, what is it to like build a house? You first must invent the entire universe right. or, yeah, or something totally. like that. Like it's, it's like, yeah, like there, there, there's, there's so many factors that are existing in balance with each other. Well, I would say dynamic equilibrium or, 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 uh, uh, what do you call that? Disequilibrium, dynamic disequilibrium with each other is probably a more accurate way to describe it. Um, where you have sort of like, uh, uh, you know, phase patterns of activity and recession, um, that exists between different dynamics in a way that creates this like song that the author keeps referring to. Um, and that just means like the science that is possible with mycology is like enormous and vast, right? Um, especially like kind of like a mycological focused ecology. Where you under where you study like these uh, mycoheterotrophs who are not themselves fungus, but exist in a fungal context. 
Yeah, right. Absolutely. The um, I, d- I don't know where it is exactly in the book, but like the the author does kind of call mycology the neglected megascience. Yes, it's I think in the next chapter. Yeah, yeah, it's a strong candidate for a science that you should probably pay attention to and do, but it's just weirdly neglected. And um, but the, the more people look at it, the more like they look into it, it's like oh, holy shit! Like so much of terrestrial life on earth and so much of like our lives really does depend on this stuff and but it, it's it's a kind of scary thing right like it's kind of i think you can almost detect that it's a kind of basilisk right like you, people are reluctant to look at it because it reveals too much ugly stuff that like like you were saying like i think if folks who are like oh well we just we'll, we'll just cut down a shitload of trees and we'll plant some new ones that's a kind of neat a very neat modern sort of way of thinking about things and then when you point out that like well no if you destroy if you fucking destroy the soil while you do that and you kill off these um, communities, like these massive networks, it's not your your project just isn't going to fucking succeed. That's staring at the head of fucking Medusa, right? Like that's like realizing that does you harm. Yeah, it's very much like, uh, you know, sort of like the classic, like, uh, Amando Iannucci, like decision process uh, comedy where it's like, like, can't we just make this problem go away? Like, can't we... Can't we just like oversimplify things vastly and pretend the problem doesn't exist? Um, that th- there, there is, there's so much of that that is, um, thwarted or like sort of like niggled or problematized by looking at these complex networks. Um, that is just very inconvenient. Uh, to people who want to have very simple solutions to things so that that costs them less money and time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. That's the, it's, it's the curse of contemporary, like modern kind of organization, right? Like that, um, you know, you know, beer complained about the tendency of organizations to shoot the cash, like to, to sim, to radically simplify the problem they're solving, like by, by basically butchering the problem to make it fit the scale of like if if you're a very simple if you're a very simple uh, organization with some very simple solutions to offer you have to butcher the problem so that it fits the solution um and this this just keeps coming up right over and over again that we're, we're constantly shooting the can in all kinds of ways and when you point out that like uh not not only is that action stupid but it's also not going to work that's the that's the thing they fucking hate right it's like it's one thing for their actions to be stupid but for them to be failures that's over the fucking line right? <laughs> yeah no that's the that's the thing that they really don't want uh publicized to ever acknowledge yeah right not only yeah. is this dumb but it won't fucking work either you know yeah yeah uh-huh um i don't know like i, I don't know why this fucking reminds me but it kind of did that like um yeah, there's, there's, this, there's this thing that fucking happens, right? Especially with, like, authoritarian kind of styles of thought where they, 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 they drill into this extremely simplistic mindset. Like, because I, I think authoritarian patterns of thought often emerge in response to hyper-complex situations and the, 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 the person goes into a clenched reflex and just decides, fuck this, I'm going to, like, double down on strongman bullshit and I'm going to fucking smash the problem. And, you know, it... But then it ends. It ends in fucking disaster, right? Like the the thousand year Reich lasted eleven fucking years, <laughs> you know. Um, it always ends in catastrophe. Or uh, what? What we what we've what we've learned about like uh, the like pandemic response in in China, where it was like uh, when people were like revolting about the lockdowns, 
the government couldn't do anything because Xi Jinping was not in the country. <laughs> and they literally couldn't do anything without him giving orders because everyone was so terrified. <laughs> the, the state, this supposed fucking wonderland of agency and possibilities, had kneecapped itself. In, in its quest for simplicity. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. It's like, it, it's, it's, it's sort of like the logical conclusion of the Clench Reflex is like the, the radical, like, authoritarianism, like, uh, sort of, uh, like returning to almost like the, like, enlightened despotism model of like the 18th century or whatever, right? Where it's just like, oh yeah, we'll simply get the emperor to do everything. That'll work. Uh, and, and, uh, <laughs> like in, you know, Austria or Russia or whatever at that time. Um, and then, uh, and then the lockdowns, right? It's like, oh, well, we have this, uh, this, this really difficult problem of this pandemic and this viral spread and our medical system isn't up to snuff to deal with this. And also, like, uh, we are for various reasons, like, unable to get the best vaccines, right? Cost, uh, political barriers, etc., like geopolitical tensions, uh, pride, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so the answer is to just literally shut everyone away in boxes for like years. Um, like it, it's extreme clench reflex shit, right? Um, yeah. And I think that's kind of the core of what for me at least, like, leads me to these, this kind of project and these kind of investigations is like, because I, th I think, like, you know, n not only do we want, um, you know, systems and solutions that are um, humane and uh, collaborative and stuff like that, we also want systems that actually fucking work, right? And the, the, the right wing just doesn't have anything to offer in that register of shit that actually works. Yes, well, I, I think that the difficulty is that, the difficulty here, I think, is that there is, um, okay, so there is a, there is a variety of right-wing thought that is about radical simplification, right? Um, and I think all right-wing thought to a degree tends in that direction, but we also have to remember that, like, organic agriculture has a pretty, like, fashy background uh in terms of where it comes from and like the difficult thing is that like although you know heidegger was certainly wrong in being like like you know obviously heidegger was not like the founder of organic agriculture or anything but he was like in the same vein of thinking right is is he you know, he was obviously wrong in, like, appealing to Hitler as a god that could save the sort of, like, the Germanic heartlands from the predations of, like, you know, international Jewish godless capitalism. Um, but he, um, like, the, the, the organic agricultural right-wingers were to a degree correct in their critiques of uh, the disruption of the land by agricultural capitalism uh, in a way that, like, socialists, I think, have definitely clocked over the years, but at the time, in the mid-century, generally did not appreciate, or I should say, 
especially like, you know, social Democrats and, and communist Marxists of various sorts, you know, there were like sort of um, anarchist communes and that kind of thing that were doing this kind of stuff because of their like connections to the peasantry and all that kind of thing. But it, 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 there is definitely like a big L in the history of the left in terms of massively overlooking this problem uh, in the 20th century um, and then trying to like catch up with our own mistakes um, while at the same time not simply becoming eco-fascists, right? Because the thing that, about eco-fascism that is about radical simplification is that you just exclude anyone who is different and do things exactly the same way they've always been done in these like zones of uh re like uh like ethnic reconstruction where it's like you have to it, it's almost like you take you take what is kind of like a dynamic phenomenon in the countryside and as like these like eco-fascists you try to sort of like laboratize it by creating a stereotype of what that is and then like reconstructing it around that ideal as opposed to like um, acknowledging the complexities of what's actually there. Uh, and, and I think that's the massive blind spot in this regard that you see on the right. In addition to, for example, like, you know, in this book, we see the all of this like international cosmopolitan collaboration around mycological science. And that's something you would never get in a fascist regime, right? In an eco-fascist regime. It, it, the kind of like unity of science stuff that we see happening in amateur mycology and professional mycology right now is very much something that's a legacy of the left. It's just we're operating in a realm of science uh, that has been ignored um, by the left in the search for uh, like radical material plenty uh, and improvement of living standards uh, for uh, large numbers of people. Absolutely. Um, yeah, we're, we're, we're trying to correct things. It's uh, it's it's going in a slightly better direction. Um, uh, let's see what we got here. Um, this, I think this part where we get to these info chemicals, which kind of like the, the, the pivot that the author uses here is that like, it would be tempting to think of this as like a forest utopia, like pure mutual aid, but like really like these networks seem to convey a lot more than just conveying resources for everyone's benefit. Um, you get weird kind of shit, like some plants produce poisons and send them out along the network, you know, um to fuck up their competitors, <laughs> you know? They're like the black hat hackers of the of the wood wide web, right? Yeah. So what's shared in the network is a bit more ambiguous and ambivalent, um, in the sense that it's it, it, it's not exactly a kind of like purely virtuous kind of thing that's going on. Like the network is kind of like all networks are in some way value neutral, right? And we, we get this really interesting example then of these infochemicals um, and how they're probably propagated through the network as well. That like um, s some plants will send out a plume of volatile compounds to attract wasps when they're attacked by aphids. Um, and basically scientists have observed that this is kind of 
travels a distance that's implausible for it to just be going over the air. Like it has to be going through the network to to really like the to really kind of affect these other plants. Um, and it brings it brings up this question of like what what is there's clearly communication going on within the network, but what form does it really take? Is it that does the plant deliberately send out an alert signal via the network, or does the plant, the first, the first plant to get attacked, does it just instinctively scream and the fungi pick up the signal and they deliberately relay it to everyone else as a way of protecting their livestock, perhaps? To me, the latter seems a bit more plausible. Yeah, so, well, it's, it's a difference... The way they, they that this is traditionally being conceptualized, and this is not like as the author notes, this is not necessarily a helpful conceptualization. Is the distinction between yelling "watch out" and the like, or you know, danger or something like that, uh, and 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 simply screaming because you're in distress, right? And 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 again, this is like somatically problematic because like. Screaming that you're like because you're in distress can effectively be a watch out as well, right? <laughs> because people can interpret that as hey, something bad's going on over there, <laughs> right? Yes, yeah, it, yeah. It, the intent is what they're getting at, and again, it's like, well, okay, but obviously these plants don't have the level of cognition or the i should say the type of cognition we have because it's like you know we have like you know the whole like um like lizard brain you know and then the 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 prefrontal cortex and all these different complex cognitive systems that allow us to conceive the world in terms of, of of volition and 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 uh and and uh cognition um and so, like, maybe maybe thinking in terms of that problem of intention is actually not very helpful here. Um, yeah, uh, because it, uh, it may obscure more than it reveals. Yeah, totally right. Like, um, that, that is something that will kind of be, it's a bit of a theme in this later part of the book, is like kind of the problems of projecting our models onto these things, right? Like, is it... Because it's it's just so tempting to read it in ways that correspond to us, right? Um, or maybe it's so maybe it is something that's analogous to like maybe the, the two possibilities I named there, right? Like either either the tree is the agent and it uses the internet basically to send an email to the, the plant next door to it, or maybe the plants are just kind of stupid and it's the fungus that's the agent that has the cognition that it it recognizes a threat and then deliberately propagates a signal to all of its pets to like tell them to arm themselves for defense or whatever or or it's kind of both right like it's a kind of weird machinic libidinal kind of complex that adds up to a behavior that's just not human it's an inhuman behavior exactly so like if we think about you know sort of the human body right and the endocrine system like when we're in when we are in uh distress or our body recognizes distress in some way, our endocrine system will just like dump uh, all kinds of chemicals like cortisol and and this kind of stuff into our system, right? Like to activate a fight or flight response to deal with the situation. 
It's very much conceivable that, like, when a plant is attacked, it just, like, floods its system in some kind of infochemical, right? As a, oh, shit, you know, we need to, like, you know, uh, take whatever countermeasures we can. Because the plants, the, the one thing they note is that the plants, if they are... If they are warned in some way or primed in some way to protect against the pest, they can take some uh, like uh, chemical countermeasures to protect themselves, right? Um, and and so this is the value of the infochemicals being sent from one plant to the others is that the other plants can prepare to defend themselves, um, but. Is there a message being sent of everybody watch out, get ready to fight? Uh, or is, is it just a matter of like similar to our endocrine systems, which tend to be very stupid, right? Like they, you know, it's very lizard brain, right? It's just like we have all kinds of situations. Like if you have PTSD, you have like all kinds of situations where you will have an extreme endocrine response to something that does not warrant it in any way. To, to fucking nothing. <laughs> nothing happens. It, it's a simply a trigger mechanism, right? Like, it is not a considered activation of the system. It is just your body saying, you know, A looks like B, activate the oh shit button. Right. That's all that's going on. I'm, I'm very familiar. <laughs> that happens all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. It happens to me all the time, whether it's because of trauma or it's because of autism or it's because of, you know, <laughs> disability induced trauma. Right. Like this shit happens all the time. And your prefrontal cortex is just trying to do the best it can to like you know, pick up the pieces uh, after your endocrine system has gone through the roof, um, right? So so it's very conceivable that, like, a plant could have that kind of, like, endocrine response, right? And then it's like, okay, so if it's going through its whole... If it's going through its whole body and into its roots and connecting to the, 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 the mycelial network then yeah, like there's going to be a lot available, but it's also possible that the, that the, the fungi could just, you know, give it that extra little boost, right. That like, um, that, uh, they were describing when they said that like the diffusion of nutrients happens faster than you would expect through just like simple, uh, like physical diffusion. Um, uh, it could be uh, like, you know, sort of like a packet handling system, right? Where it's like, oh, yeah, these are higher priority packets. So they get sent through first, right? Um, and, and, and that doesn't necessarily require a sophisticated, um, a sophisticated, like, uh, what do you call that theory of mind in order for it to function, it requires decision and computation in a sense, but it doesn't really require, uh, yeah, like like uh, analytical cognition um, and strategic thinking, like foresight thinking. Um, Absolutely right, and like this, this kind of it, it's really tantalizing possibility that like if, if these 
mycorrhizal networks are these like integrated information systems that form some kind of weird little intelligence. Um, like th this could be a, a and it, it rhymes with a lot of the stuff we've seen, right? That like um, the root networks and the mycorrhizal networks form this kind of extension of each other that they're they add up to more than they could ever do alone and it's like is this a weird nervous endocrine system that's like distributed across the network is it is it a body without organs basically like yeah 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 you know for sure because like obviously the the um the as we discussed right right like the mycorrhizal network is a body without organs. They literally don't have organs. Uh, they have modalities, but they don't have organs. Um, and, you know, plants have organs, uh, but uh, they, um, insofar as they exist in that network, um, they're kind of more of like, how would you say, like, sort of like, a chemical soup that is a part of this like broader mm, I don't know what you would say it's almost like it's almost like sort of like a hydraulic uh, a, a hydraulic network or something like that right like it's very very permeable very very mobile and and each one is it, like the just because the plant is like organized doesn't mean that it's if you if you sort of look at it holographically as a part of the micro, mycorrhizal network, it doesn't mean that that is the overriding uh, factor in its existence. Yeah, it's it's bizarre stuff. It's um, it really challenges our kind of concepts of like individuality and what exactly is a living thing, right? Because, like, there's a lot of living things in this network that aren't really capable of surviving on their own. Um, and that is reciprocally true of a bunch of them with each other. Um, is it, it's, it's, yeah, strong evidence for some kind of strange superorganism that is just fucking out there constantly beneath our feet, and we, we walk around and we don't give a fucking shit about it, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it's it's 100% like... Uh, you know, like Princess Mononoke, right? Like, <laughs> just the, the the humans, the civilized humans, just utterly fucking things up in a very uh, ignorant way. Um, um, the chapter closes out a bit on touching on kind of neuroscience, like like if these if these networks are complex adaptive systems, which they seem to be, then um, the mycologists are getting. A little bit of um, extra help from neuroscience, which is the other science that studies complex adaptive systems. Not making a claim that the mycorrhizal network is is a brain in that sense, but that like they share a lot of the same characteristics. Yeah, I mean it's it's a brain in the way that Beer meant it, but not necessarily in the way that a, a biologist or a, an a, 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 an anatomist or physiologist would would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Let's see, chapter seven, radical mycology. This chapter is largely about the, at a high level, it's about the transformative um, powers of fungi and how they've been involved, deeply involved in many world transforming events in the past and seem to be kind of pivotal to the current transformation we're going through. This initially kicks off on their powers of decomposition, 
this this shit is insane, right? Like, cause um, the short version of the story here, I guess, is that when when plants came out of the ocean with you know with the help of fungi, they they didn't initially have wood. Well, well, well the the story actually starts with the author describing how uh, how they're 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 vibing in a what is essentially like a fungus hot tub. <laughs> Uh, this is like so it's like a it's like a practice that comes from japan i mean obviously japan has like a very sophisticated uh history of uh using fermentation um because uh well there's a there's a number of different reasons but like one of them is just that like by default there isn't a lot of very interesting flavors uh found in japan like it's a very sort of like neutral food palette by default and a lot of the sort of like accents to food in japanese food uh come from fermentation uh as opposed to using spices um or uh extremely high levels of salt which is what you found in european cooking uh existing in a kind of similar uh climate um but of course, there's all kinds of like things they learned from like Chinese medicine or like practical industrial processes they learn from um, uh, uh, fermentation and uh, also uh, like beyond just sort of like food health practices, it goes on to things like these uh, these fermentation baths. So you essentially just take a bunch of wood shavings, you wet them down, pile them up into a heap, and then they put them in a big wooden tub and you, you know, you make sure the fungi are there and then the fungi will just start to decompose the wood. And because of, uh, you know, the nature of uh, like the chemical process they're going through, um, that creates heat. And so your your fermentation tub essentially becomes a hot tub and you can just like pop yourself down in there and have a nice hot tub uh, experience by like cooking yourself yeah, kind of largely uh, <laughs> I, mean, I, would, I think i would not be able to do this i'd be too scared like this is fucking weird i would i would i would absolutely do this i would get i would be down with this i i've done the thing in japan where they like bury you underground um like on the beach uh it's like you you get in like uh in like a kimono and then they just like take like hot sand and like bury you in it um, and your head's poking out, obviously, uh, and you just sort of lie there and you just have a nice little like cozy time. Um, uh, and, and, and this sounds like a good time as well, although I'm sure the smell is profound. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I think I would be a little bit worried they would start eating me probably, you know, um, <laughs> I've learned to fear and respect the fungi through this book. Um, it's like, it's like, don't worry. They're only eating you very slowly. Yeah. It's not going to take very quickly. Uh, <laughs> maybe it'd be fun. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so like, I mean, the book goes into a lot about how this process was even enabled in the first place because, 
Um, initially, plants just didn't have wood involved, but they were under an evolutionary pressure to get taller so they could get more sunlight. And so wood is the way you do that because it's more structurally resilient than the usual kind of stuff plants are made out of. But the thing about the wood, um, which is made up of... So, so ordinary plant stuff is made up of cellulose, but wood is made of lignin. Um, plants invented a way to create this kind of shit, grew very tall, then fell over and died, and then did it over and over again, leaving behind these fucking mountains of just wood lying around. It's like, if you imagine, like, a clear-cut zone, right, uh, of, like, all of these wood, all of these trees that have been felled and not harvested yet, of just, like, the chaos, or, like, if you, if you see, like, you know, when that, um that uh asteroid hit russia and there was just like that area that was like an area of forest that was completely flattened by the shockwave um if you just imagine that but like the entire earth covered in that just covered in dead trees that are not rotting because fungi have not figured it out yet yeah there's there's no decomposition there are there are obviously tree like there's obviously plants growing on top of the plants so this isn't quite what you imagine as that disaster zone, but the degree of biomass is is what you should think about there, and then some. And during this period, um, colossal amounts of carbon dioxide are pulled out of the atmosphere and turned into wood, which just fucking piles up to the heavens, um, because nothing can break it down yet. Eventually, fungi figure out how to break this stuff down with these... Um, uh, I mean, it's, it's explained in some detail here, but basically some fungi release some enzymes that are able to break it down. Like, lignin has a very particular structure to it. Um, a lot of en enzymes will just bounce off like Teflon. If you can figure out these uh, particular enzymes, um, uh, let me see if I can quickly find the word for them. Uh, pero, pero... <laughs> Peroxidases? Peroxidases, that's what it is. Um, they, they're able to break down lignin, and finally, uh, fungi can get at this... Um, get at this uh, resource to decompose it. The plants induced an ice age, and it wasn't until the fungi just discovered how to metabolize or decompose uh, all this biomass that the carbon, the, the carbon balance of the atmosphere went up again and uh, the um, ice age ended, right? Right, because like, um, yeah, huge ice age... Plants suffered greatly at the hands of the thing they had created for themselves. Does that remind anyone of anything? Um, and yeah, like the, the, the levels of CO2 had crashed. Um, the, when, when, when fungi decompose wood or decompose anything, it releases energy and CO2 back into the atmosphere, which warms the place up again. But crucially, a lot of this stuff had sank out of reach of the fungi, and that's how you get coal. Uh, coal is the piles of wood that just the fungi couldn't get to. And just was totally undecomposed. Yeah, and like oil, essentially fossil fuels of any kind um, that we're are found in in quote unquote nature. So when 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 you see a rotting lump of wood out in the the wild, that's you know it's doing this chemical uh, chemical combustion. Like fungi are chemically combusting that wood. Um, and then when you you know pick up a lump of coal and burn it, you're just uh, doing the, the a different kind of combustion on the same material, uh, which is pretty strange. And we get this absolutely wild statistic. It says, Today, fungal decomposition, much of it woody plant matter, is one of the largest sources of carbon emissions, emitting about 85 gigatons of carbon to the atmosphere every year. 
in 2018, the, combu the combustion of fossil fuels by humans emitted around 10 gigatons. So we're at like one, like, you know, as, as absolutely out of control as our emissions are, we're at like one ninth of what fungi release into the atmosphere <laughs> per annum. That is fucking incredible. And it also just kind of presents the 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 counterfactual world where it's like, like like um, all like not just wood but like uh, animal bodies when they when they die they don't decompose because fungi aren't there and we just have like piles and piles and piles of corpses <laughs> everywhere. Um. Yeah. Oh, oh my god. The, yeah, like that. That's the insane thing about this. That like just um, life took off on a fucking crazy trajectory and just piled up biomass up to the fucking heavens, and nothing could be done about it for a while. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, absurd. It is. It is unreal. It is really, truly bizarre to think about um, where all of these fossil fuels come from. And the other thing they noted is like, yeah, like. Coal will coal will be decomposed by fungi if you just leave it sitting out, because um, it's been exposed to the air, uh, unlike the coal underground. And also, like there is a particular kind of fungus that gets into the fuel tanks of jets and decomposes jet fuel. Uh, and I assume this also is part of the reason why if you leave gasoline in your gas tank too long, it'll go bad. Is because there's there's fungi in there that are are bringing it down. Like you under like you hear about the the sort of the way that it will it will decompose into like water. Um, uh, if just left in your gas tank, it will like destabilize and decompose into water, and then you get water in your gas, and then it doesn't burn as well. Blah blah blah. But like I never heard of or thought of the factor that. Yeah, there's probably just like fungi in there just eat, eating away at what you've got in your gas tank and uh, and uh, and ruining your gasoline, <laughs> um, but but having a really good time. Amazing, right? Um, um, it's fucking incredible. The uh, the chapter then kind of moves on to yeah this, this notion of mycology as a neglected mega science and how there's this um, substantial like amateur world of mycology. Um, one obvious branch is the psychedelics um, thing. But there's also, like, a lot of folks working on um, what they call mycoremediation, like using fungi um, as a way to remediate, like, um, damaged ecosystems. Like, if you have an oil spill, just chuck a bunch, bunch of fungus on it and it'll clean it up pretty quick, you know, this sort of idea. Yeah, I mean, that's the idea. It, it's, it's, it's not that, it's unfortunately, it's not, it's not that simple. Yeah. Uh, but, but, um, uh, this is what they're working on. And uh, yeah, mainly the kind of the kinds of fungus that they are using are what are called white rot fungi. And originally, these are the fungi that were able to produce that um, uh, peroxidases to break down lignans. Um, but they, it turns out that they're also really good at breaking down all kinds of other toxic shit. Um, that happens to be in the world. The core insight is that fungi really do thrive on catastrophe and rot. And uh, well, they, they do the rot, but they, they, tr they thrive on leftover crap and toxins from other processes. So they could, um, 
uh, they've trained fungi to break down cigarette butts, which I think is a really fun image of this unhappy little mushroom being goaded into eating cigarette butts, <laughs> you know? Yeah, they, 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 they sort of did like, um, like exposure therapy to the, to the, the fungus, right? Where it's like, it starts out with like normal, like wood chips or whatever, uh, that, that are, the, the, the fungus is being, uh, fed. And then, uh, as time goes on, um, they introduce more and more cigarette butts into the environment. And the fungus apparently has sort of like a latent repertoire of enzymes it can use. And it takes a while for it to activate uh, dormant ones and deactivate uh, active ones. But if you can goad it into switching to a effective uh, enzyme, it can do something like uh, decompose and metabolize uh, cigarette butts. And like, crucially, the mushrooms that are produced are non-toxic. Like, it filters and cleans out all that crap and just breaks it down. Which is like, unbelievable. It's like, what? It's like the most toxic shit you can imagine. <laughs> like, it, like, when you... There is something truly out there about cigarette smoke like it's like i have a really 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 sensitive respiratory system and you know i can pick out the smells of things like wherever i go but compared to say like forest fire smoke right like wood smoke cigarette smoke is like one person lights up in the general vicinity of where you are with a tiny little cigarette and all of a sudden you're like, oh, fuck. Like, like, you know, it's like, oh, it's like I can't breathe. My sinuses are going crazy. My throat's itchy for like four hours later. And it, it, it's like it is so, so, so toxic. And the fact that the fungus can turn this into just like a normal ass mushroom is it's like it's incredible. Yeah, it's amazing, right? There's another example of them using, uh, again, <laughs> this rather unhappy image of being uh, being coaxed into eating uh, used diapers, and just like it, but it does it like a champ. Once you once you like make it, once you force it to like rifle around in its bag of tricks to find something that can do it, yeah, it does it like a fucking champ. Well, yeah, it's. Cr it's wild because you could conceive of a world like, you know, they sort of talk about later in this chapter. It's kind of jumping ahead. But essentially how we can use mycelium as a plastic. Um, right. Uh, and it's wild to think about the future where we could have children's disposable diapers made out of mycelium. And then those diapers are also consumed by fungi to make mushrooms or whatever the fuck right um fuels whatever i don't know but it, it, it it's like that would be such an incredible waste reduction and it, it in a way it's kind of like if you think about the fact that plastic polymers are produced out of fossil fuels it's sort of like you're short-circuiting uh, the process of going from fossil fuels to plastics to decomposing the plastics with fungus, uh, 
right? Because the, the fungi were already able to decompose the biomass in the first place, right? But instead of doing that, you just go straight from <laughs> like, you know, whatever biomass to producing mycelium to produce to to decomposing the mycelium with other fungi. Right. Absolutely. Like it's it's and that's kind of the heart of like the remarkable metabolic trick these things pull off, right? That like they're so fucking good at this. And they're so good at creating like solid matter out of fucking anything, you know? And we we have we have these like sad imitations like plastic science or whatever the fuck. And it's like okay, we, if we happen to have a big ba- a big fucking thing of oil lying around, we can turn it into you know toys and fucking phones and stuff or whatever. But like fungi laugh at that shit. They're just like I'll turn anything into more mushroom, <laughs> you know? Yeah, but but the thing is like the thing that is interesting about it is like okay, so. You know, the the fungi don't have organs. They have these kind of like um, modalities, right, that they can exist in. And they, you know, they do produce structures in the form of mushrooms, right, and in terms of uh, these mycorrhizal networks. But like we can get the fungi to mold into shapes and like all kinds of shapes that our imaginations can come up with. And that's something that they can't do. Right. And so like, there's all these kinds of like interesting creative possibilities that are made possible by the idea of like, not just creating um, mycelium, but creating molded mycelium. And they even talk about like, um, like impregnating the mite, like not in a, in a literal sense, but like in, in, including like electrically conductive uh, 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 minerals and components into the mycelium in certain molds in order to create like circuits that have been built within the mycelium. So then when you dry it out, they, you have like a computing uh, system or uh, information communication system that has been like built into the structure of the thing that you have created, uh, almost like making like a you know like a, a a silicon microchip, but in a living, growing thing. Yeah, it's really intense, right? Like it's um, and like we, we that that's the pivot from the decomposition to the construction. We get there. Um, via the um, the termites that that farm fungi and like that's fucking nuts, right? These um Af- African African macrotermies ma- uh, termites um these they, these guys they they build enormous structures um but like and you might ask what the fuck do they do in there? Do they sit around and you know just play Xbox or whatever? No, they farm fucking fungus, right? Like they have these. These ants have like a technological mass society that's built around agriculture, <laughs> and you know the reason they build the mounds is so they they have an like a controlled climate. Like they invented AC like thirty million fucking years ago, so they could farm fungus, and it's the fungus that digests their food for them. They take the wood chips. And this is why they go after wood, right? This is why termites love to eat wood. Well, they don't eat it. Well, in a very indirect way, they do. They grab the chunk of wood, they bring it home, chuck it onto the pile of fungus, 
the fungus breaks it down and spits out all these um, delicious juices or whatever. And it's that stuff that the ants feed on. It's externalized digestion in a technological mass society that's a lot fucking older than ours. <laughs> yeah, because like these these termite mounds that are built out of like sort of the, I mean, it, it's 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 kind of like this macro structure where it's like you build the you build the fermentation chamber and then it just keeps growing and growing out of the waste of the chamber, right? Um, and, uh, some of these last, like, what is it, like, hundreds of years, um, they've existed as, like, cities of termites, um, and so that's, like, on par with, like, various human cities, like, my hometown is about 200 years old, that's, that's, <laughs> it's, like, the same age as a termite mound. <laughs> they're gonna be a lot, they're gonna be around a lot longer than than your town is. I'm sorry to break it to you, you know? <laughs> I, 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 I think so, yeah. And I mean, I love also the story of how people, uh, people, like, use the termites to fuck over the French. <laughs> the French, the French colonizers, they're doing, they're doing, uh, they're doing sabotage by, uh, introducing termites into, like, the colonial administration buildings so that they would, like, they ate up all the colonial records. Like, can you imagine? Like, it's like, oh, like, no, the permanent records are gone. Like, we can't, we can't, we can't do a colonialism. We, we can't, we can't categorize people. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's just amazing. Uh, yeah, I think that's, that's incredible, right? Because like, um... At some point in this chapter, it's noted that um, fungi just are a kind of voracious hunger in a in a bodily form. Like, they're just pure appetite. And, like, termites have the reputation for being pure appetite as well, but it's it's an external, it's an extended phenotype via a different species. <laughs> it's because, yeah, it's because they're feeding the fungus. <laughs> and, and, yeah, and, and uh, the termites... It's also interesting because the, the, the fungi that is produced in the termite mounds is huge and also considered a delicacy, but it's another one of these fungi that have been impossible to produce um, in, in a controlled human environment because the, the micro-regulation of the temperature and the, the, you know, the oxygen, the gases that are available for the fermentation that is done by the termites is so sophisticated that we haven't been able to replicate it. Um, and, and, and so it's like, yeah, like they not only build these structures, engage in all this organized activity, I mean, literally cannot live without this symbiosis with the fungus because their food source is entirely dependent on this, on this uh, fermentation. Um, but they also, uh, do this really, really sophisticated, like, HVAC, uh, work. <laughs> they've got AC. Yeah, know? exactly. They've, they've had it for longer than we've had. It's incredible. And, like, I don't just, just what a wonderful example of, like, a natural, like, non-human cybernetic system, like a goal-directed, feedback-driven mega system that's composed of all kinds of high variety parts like it's, it's incredible yeah and they were talking about how like people in some it's like west africa right west african areas 
like they they like worship the termites as like divine beings and like there's like a creation myth about how like god required termites in order to make the universe to build yeah exactly like they're builders <laughs> it was like well i can't do it without the termites <laughs> Which is so great. <laughs> that is incredible, right? And like that, that role, that, that, that notion of building is the pivot into um, this, this fairly long discussion of like um, using um, mycelium as a construction material, like deliberately growing, um, just feeding shitloads of sawdust and crap to these things and building bricks and leather and all kinds of shit. Um, which, you know, it's, it's, it can be summarized as that, basically. There's all kinds of companies doing this. Um, and trying to prop and having some serious success with it. The main one they the main one they mention is this company Co Renewal, which has like a patented construction process and what sounds like really sophisticated means of production in order to uh, roll out just like tons and tons and tons of mycelium. Um, uh, and you know they're using it in all kinds of interesting ways, some of which are horrifying, uh, like working for the Pentagon, but. Um, uh, they do also seem to have like some kind of like, what do you call that? Um, you know, it's like, it's, it's, it's like at the beginning of like the enshittification curve where like the company will, uh, make something available to users in a very sort of like open and productive way. Like, I don't remember what exactly that phase is called, but they seem like I, I am not uh, I'm not as optimistic about this company as the authors necessarily, because I know that enshittification is a thing. <laughs> right. But like, essentially, they will like license out their technology to groups of amateur mycologists or communities or whatever who want to use it to build something or other or experiment with something or other. Um, and then they can go on and like use it for like their particular niche cases without having to pay huge license fees. But again, we know enshittification exists. So how long is it until the license fees show up? How long is it until they create some kind of like capitalist, like lock-in mechanism? How is it, how long is it until this becomes unity, but for mushrooms, right? Like, uh, I'm skeptical, but I do appreciate that what they're doing in a like material sciences, uh, sense is like very, very cool. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think, yeah, it's like how long until they pull an oracle on this. Um, but I, I kind of hope that the, the grassroots, um, amateur mycology stuff can keep that in check or somewhat. There's a kind of like open source substrate to this stuff that might, um, might be harder to contain, I guess, you know, um, if folks are able to just replicate it on their own. Um, I think one of the final like interesting points, um, in the chapter is, um, I think we've, we've sort of avoided naming some of the folks that are named here, but like there's this guy, Paul Stamets, who's, um, kind of a, a big deal in this kind of world. And, um, he had this kind of realization, like th thinking about the problem of like honeybees uh, getting fucked over um, by parasites and this, you know, decline in bee populations. Um, and that kind of realizing that these wood, rot uh, wood rotting fungi are very rich sources of antiviral compounds, right? Like, and th there's a lot of, um, you know, health research and um, pharmaceutical research going into that. But he also just kind of connected the dots and seeing, having seen 
in his childhood having seen bees kind of crawling under a, um, a rotting wooden stump, seemingly to get at the mycelium under it. And that he's then developed kind of um, a cure for bee diseases from fungi, right? And, like, and it's just another one of these points of like the deep involvement of fungi in all kinds of life processes and the kind of cross-species collaboration that's constantly going on here. So like Stamets is able to invent and kind of market this um, miracle cure for bees off the back of having just realized that like they were doing that anyway, you know, like bees have been self-medicating themselves with the antiviral compounds from fungi for a long time, you know? Well, it's very much like the, um, very much like the, uh, wasp, uh, defense scenario that we were talking about earlier, right? Like we, we can play the role of the mycorrhizal network uh, and just be like, oh, you're doing this. Let me help you do that. Right. Um, let me, let me spread this a little bit further, um, in order to provide a protection against the, uh, pests that are killing the bees. Yeah, like we're getting roped into the fungus story, <laughs> and and the way it keeps um the way it keeps its livestock going. And I I did want to I did just want to correct myself. The the company I was talking about earlier is actually Ecovative. Ecovative. I I I misspoke earlier, but I just yeah, for the record, that's what it is. Yeah. The final chapter, uh, I guess, uh, making sense of fungi, is I think quite interesting. But what it really hinges on is um, the kind of roles that fungi have played in our sense making. Like you know, we, we've been using them, especially yeast, yeasts, for a long time to alter our minds and to um, I don't know, like a lot. A lot of our culture and stuff seems to be built around the collaboration with yeasts, right? Like, and you know. They, they play a role in myth. Um, you know, we have the gods of drunkenness and this sort of thing, right? But, like, also kind of getting to the ultimate point that, like, the the stories we tell matter, right? And they especially matter when we're investigating something in the world, right? That, like, um, when we go out and we look at fungi, we, we do any kind of science, really. We, we're necessarily bringing along these metaphors and these biases with us, Um and, you know, I think we touched on this earlier, but like, you know, looking at the shared mycorrhizal networks, some people see socialism of the soil, others see deregulated markets, others see like, like kinship networks among trees, like a family structure or whatever. Um, we can't help but bring these kind of things to, to the table. But then, you know, our, hopefully the, our study of the thing feeds back on itself, like in this kind of wonderful cybernetic way that like if we can try to understand fungi on their own terms we learn something about ourselves and about them and it feeds back and it keeps going and there's a lot of really interesting stuff in here but i think that's kind of what it really hinges on yeah there's this haraway quote at the start of the chapter um it matters which stories tell stories which concepts think concepts which systems systematize systems so this is the second order cybernetics idea, right? There's some really interesting examples that are brought up here that, um, of like people bringing like that, that like when people talk about fungi, they're often telling on themselves more so than they realize, you know, like that there's these kind of like 
generally like mycophilic versus mycophobic kind of perspectives or like cultures, I guess, right? Like you get, you, you can kind of observe this. Um, there's one example here of uh, Charles Darwin's granddaughter, Gwen Ravarat, or Ravaray, maybe, I can't pronounce things, um, describing um, her Aunt Etty, right, which was Darwin's daughter, and her, her weird obsession with stinkhorn mushrooms, which have this, like, really insane, like, phallic appearance. And so Aunt Etty would, like, go around the woods trying to dig these fucking things up and, like, get rid of them or whatever, and it's like, there's something weird going on there, right? Like, somebody who claims to be utterly repulsed by these things spends a lot of time thinking about them. You know, there's clearly some in really intense psychosexual derangement happening there. Um, and doesn't that reveal, like, our relationship with the fungus reveal, reveals something of ourselves, right? Um, and that, I don't know, there's a nice story here of, like... <sighs> Our investigations into these things being ways of, like, revealing something in ourselves, right? Like, what we see in the fungus tells a story about ourselves. It, it kind of reminds me of how in tree stories there's the story of how, like, all the, the garbage in New York was handled by the, the pigs that they brought in. But then because the pigs were having sex in the streets, uh, the, they were like, we got to get rid of them! You gotta get rid of these pigs. Like we can't, we can't have them around. It's it's obscene. It's obscene. Uh, even though like the the answer, like in the absence of that, was to like trade an entire army of garbage people to go around and pick up garbage when the pigs were just doing it for free and also providing food. Um, so like it, it it's very like the Aunt Eddie, like you know, trying to purge obscenity from nature. Uh, but like really just kind of, yeah, like telling, telling on herself and, and making a bit of a fool of herself too. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the author also kind of suggests that like, you know, when, when we, we come with all these biases to studying, uh, fungi, um, maybe the answer is to kind of step back and see, see, try to see the fungi as agents in themselves and see the many relationships among many agents, right? Like the, the fact that the fungi, that the lichens, are not just the product of fixed partnerships, but like of these, they're products of these dynamic partnerships. They're, they're an, an array of possible relationships among a number of, of players, right? That like emerge into lichen. Um, and to make, to really make sense of fungi, you probably have to step back and think about this along continuum. Like it's, it's not that they are, you know, necessarily all about mutualism or they're necessarily all about co uh, competition. There's mm. there's a lot of both going on in those networks. Um, yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Um, which is like kind of what we see everywhere. <laughs> it's it, it's like it, where where life is involved. I mean, it's 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 like yeah, like I mean, oftentimes I think as socialists we're very much in, like uh inclined to emphasize the cooperative dimension of things because we're surrounded by a capitalist society where cooperation is entirely bent towards the ends of competition um uh it's not that it doesn't exist it's that it's 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 essentially like uh you know perverted into uh something that is highly antagonistic and destructive um but 
like, you know, if you just look at the natural world, it's really, really, really easy to find examples of competition everywhere you look. Uh, uh, like, you just have to be, uh, you just have to observe for, like, any length of time and you will find it, right? And it, it it's it's not to say that, you know, yeah, competition is the law of the jungle, blah, blah, blah. It's just to say, yeah, you have to be able to hold two ideas in your head at once. Uh, and this isn't to this isn't to argue in favor of market socialism because that was a lot of their sort of shtick. But you know, because it, it, they were like, well, we have so much cooperation in socialism, but we we don't have enough competition. But it was like if you actually looked at how like socialism, like you know, sort of actually existing socialism existed. That wasn't true at all, right? Like, <laughs> like, like, yeah, there was something I guess you could call cooperation, but only in like the most sort of like anemic sense, you know, like it, it, it's like the like sort of the most like cooperation under duress and like the way that 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 sort of the constant exhortations towards cooperation and altruism it uh like conversely bred the worst forms of cynicism in people yeah because it was all a moral kitsch right like the whole shit about like comrade or whatever the fuck like no, and at that point nobody believed it it's like this is insane right like we're clearly at each other's throats they know but nobody believed it because it, it was all under duress right um and it we get a similar kind of thing whenever like companies like workplaces try to uh uh, emphasize the cooperative dimensions of the workplace, like calling it a family or a team or, you know, we're all in this together, et cetera, et cetera. It just brings out tons of cynicism in people because it's all under duress, right? Um, and and so it's like, I don't think the market socialist line was actually correct because they made assumptions about socialism that weren't really sociologically founded, right? Um, and and it, assuming that competition was the answer to these problems, um, when actually it's probably something more, I guess, of my own biases to do with the the sort of like the dynamics of the society and the degree of freedom that exists, right? Uh, that is that is the problem um and and to to turn it into a a cooperation versus competition dichotomy um is maybe a bit missing the point and i think it's kind of the same with these mycorrhizal networks right is like you have to be willing to see like how these dynamics play off of each other um, and, 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 and they do it in a kind of, uh, yeah, like a dynamic way. Like, you know, it's like when they were talking about how, what was it? The, the, like the altruistic fungus, if you like put two of them together in the same environment, they would become competitive with each other. Right. Even though we assume that they're like they're sort of inherently altruistic in the same way that like Stalinism and like had this kind of idea that like if you came from a working class family that made you somehow like essentially a worker. 
and you would get like higher promotions within the bureaucracy because of your background when it's like well no but if you put somebody into a bureaucratic context like that they're going to be a different person than they were as as a worker and there's no sense in having this kind of like genetic essential notion of sociological status right yeah absolutely right and like um yeah the, the, i guess the, the one of the points here is that like these kind of simplistic models that are informed mostly by our biases are just always going to be problematic. And if you pursue a project based on them, it's just going to end in fucking catastrophe one way or the other, because it is a simplistic misapprehension of the world, right? Um, if studying fungi, or as you said, studying fucking anything in nature really does indicate that any sufficiently complex living system will be riddled with contradictory dynamics that still somehow often end up being stable and persistent in time overall. So we can look at, say, look at the fungi and their, their networks and think, oh shit, is, is it competitive or is it cooperative? But they, like zoom out and see that like they have been the custodians of life on the surface of the earth for a long fucking time and they've been extremely successful doing it. The forest outside your fucking house or whatever is more persistent than you are and much more fucking successful at staying alive in, in aggregate. Maybe take a hint from nature and say that, like, whether it's entirely cooperative or entirely competitive, you know, clearly the aggregate result of this hyper-complex system is a thriving and flourishing of life that is just very fucking successful. And if we're looking towards, like as socialists, we're looking towards persistent, successful social relations that actually thrive and flourish through time, that, you know, we, we, we might want to embrace the hyper-complexity of those situ situations and not be quite so obsessed with one or the other of the poles of these of these dichotomies, because the dichotomies are just false, right? And that can be quite uncomfortable like territory to be in because i think honest honestly a lot of socialists really have committed to very simplistic like laughably simplistic models of the world well yeah i mean the thing is it's it's not that the dichotomies are are false necessarily when i think about it but they're like they're like relative and positional right it's like yes you can be like competitive in this context and then switch over to being more cooperative in another context. And yeah, it's like they're not essential poles. They're they're part of a dynamic process. And yeah, like it's 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 difficult to put this into practice because we want to be suspicious of uh what like organizations we engage ourselves in right like we want to be skeptical and in a way like you know if somebody is saying everything's all relative it's all dialectics blah 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 you can get away with anything right you can get away with anything you say oh it all works itself out in the long run you know all this kind of thing um it kind of cycles back to being its own problem right where it's like <laughs> where it's like you know the idea of like the let it is future will be perfect. So any amount of suffering is worth it. It, it kind of ends up like in the same place as um, no, no, like this, 
this like uh, you know implementation of of a horribly predatory system in our socialist organization is only a stage towards the greater utopia of balance and the long run de development of of what we experience. Um, and so, like, I think it is about, in a way, like being being quite uh, open to observation. And, and, and having a variety of these, like, you know, what Haraway calls stories that we can operate with because it's only under like careful scrutiny that we can actually say anything more than stereotypes, right? Yeah, certainly, right? And, you know, accepting that no single story is going to capture everything. Like, we have to have an array of stories and a, a kind of, you know, a, an array of stories and a kind of set of values by which to, like, navigate that, you know, space of, like, which stories are, you know, attractive to us. Um, which I guess is, again, kind of rhyming a lot with what we read in neither vertical nor horizontal, right? Like, we can't expect any given model or any given story to be the one silver bullet, right? Like, the... The, the verticalist fucking Leninist organization is is the one true parody, all that kind of shit, or the, you know, distributed fucking um, just mass of the anarchist stuff, you know. Neither of those are going to cut it. Like, everything is always going to be in this kind of mixed mode. Um, and so, like, mycorrhizal networks are like that. And, like, I, I what I love about all this is, like, um, that it does rhyme with a lot of the like political theory stuff we've been writing, been reading, and with a lot of the system stuff we've been reading, that like if we take a mycelial perspective and we think of like a mycelial logic of social organization, would we be better off than just recycling the same old shit that we've been recycling? Right, and this is this is the big question. Um, you know, can we do something with this conception of networks? that isn't the same as the network conception that uh, was criticized in uh, from uh, between vertical and, and sorry neither vertical nor horizontal right where we had the the anarchists who you know said everything would just work itself out because networks uh, um, uh, like can we do something with this? new form of, uh, or sorry, I guess I should say this expanded form of natural science um, that allows us to think differently, organize differently, and uh, be responsive and constructive and dynamic as opposed to being self-sabotaging or uh, uh, self-defeating. Yeah, absolutely. Um yeah, I think we could learn a lot from the dynamism and the variety proliferation we see in fungi. Um, they're incredibly successful organisms, and they they do it on the back of an, a, a radical openness um, and a radical variety that is really kind of scary to us, you know, <laughs> being that wide open. Yes, yes, uh, exactly. Uh, we will always have a tendency towards... Um, organization, I suppose, in, in a way that they do not. Um, but we can try to sort of think more modally, more dynamically. Um, yeah, more like the hyphae uh, than like uh, building blocks, you know? Yeah. 
the um the final uh part of the book the epilogue um it's just kind of it's a, it's a strange little story of kind of where the, how the author got to where they are in terms of like making the book um when they were young they uh were obsessed with these piles of leaves that would pile up in autumn and then over time would become smaller and much less leaf-like and more soil-like so they went you know the author went and asked his dad about all this and you know got into you know realized what decomposition was what these decomposers were um and got obsessed with fungi um it's a really cute little story um he then says that like he's going to take a copy of the book and feed it to the fungi and uh see what mushrooms come out of it and um have a little nibble on them you know it's uh it's good stuff yeah i will eat my book (laughs) (laughs) i do wonder how that turned out right if it was tasty i mean it's it's really interesting right that like it, it feels very sort of like caves of cud just like applying a truly bizarre verb to a to a, to an unexpected noun, like I like yes, I will render my book edible now, and then I will eat it. Uh, it that's the sort of uh, strange plastic nature of uh, of of fungi, right? Of of sort of like metamorphosing things into other things. Um, yeah, it's very 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 bizarre and. Uh, Yet, at the same time, very familiar and, and intimate, if we could just open our, our brains to it. <laughs> I noticed that these these last couple of chapters didn't have quite so much of the um, sexual themes and the kind of relationship themes. Well, I guess the whole book is about relationships, but there's, there's less of that erotic content that was in some of the earlier chapters. <laughs> yeah, I think I think the, the, there's um, there's a little bit of it that comes up, but less for sure. Um, I think it's because it has to do more with, um, uh, human uses of fungi in industrial capacities. And also it has to do with, um, uh, sort of like cognitive modes, right? Like, uh, 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 constructive cognitive modes. So, so it's, it's a little bit focusing more on, the mycologists than the fungi and their relationships, right? It, um, and so it may be, in fact, useful to, uh, you know, go back and look at what's examined in those final chapters and then think about it in that, in that, in that relationship, uh, sensuous kind of erotic way that is, uh, uh, found in the earlier chapters of the book. Like, you know, what is, you know, like, like you think about something like, oh, um, they just sort of talk about like, you know, uh, what do you call it? Like substitute leather or fake leather or artificial leather or whatever. And it's like, yeah, like we have a very sensuous relationship to leather, which you could go and examine, right? Like it is not, um, it's not like it isn't there. It's just maybe by, by moving into that more sort of like human society frame, we are like obscuring it in the way that like Darwin's granddaughter was a bit obsessed <laughs> with doing. Right, totally. It's yeah, it is there, I guess. Um, yeah, it's. I think there was one other thing from that last chapter that I, I kind of forgot to mention. That like the author does kind of go over like how again, it's a kind of repetition of something from earlier in the book that like you're trying to categorize. Um, 
like we generally go around trying to categorize things, right? Like it's the Aristotelian project of science, right? To stick things into categories by their similarities, whatever. But like fungi totally defy this. Like they blast categories apart that like the same species of fungi can just turn into all kinds of different shapes that don't look anything like each other. Like if you came, if you came with a Aristotelian mindset to categorize them, you'd get it totally fucking wrong. And to the extent that like some mycologists have suggested just giving up on the species notions of fungi is just like because it's to, to some of them it seems like it's an actual just fantasy the notion that there are even species there right is it's like a, a a fantasy that we are it's sort of like um uh like geocentrism right or 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 you know um uh adding tons of epicycles to the uh, Ptolemaic uh, astrological system, right? Or, or as astronomical system, uh, that it is, uh, we're kind of patching up our understanding of realities to make it fit with a story that doesn't actually uh, describe things very well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, there, there, there's, there's a... There's definitely a utility in having your categories levered apart by consideration of something that just defies your categorizations. Um, and it might make you reassess things, you know? It's like, I, I mean, maybe I've just been harping on this a bit much, but like, yeah, if, if, uh, if, if, if you're somebody who cares about changing the world for the better and you're a bit dissatisfied with where actually existing socialism ended up, you know, maybe levering those categories apart and reconsidering everything uh, in the in the context of what's actually observable is is worth doing in the same way yeah and, and the other thing that's that's sort of um nice about these final chapters is they talk a lot about how i guess sort of in the same way as uh what early health insurance looked like um because these mycological solutions to problems are finicky and um quite uh alien to our typical ways of doing like materials and chemicals and uh, all these other processes um as a sort of a, as a matter of necessity there is a huge degree to which this stuff is um, done by amateurs, uh, quote unquote, uh, is like part of sort of like collaborative networks, uh, mutual aid, all of these kinds of things that are very, um, accessible, uh, to us. Uh, and so in terms of sort of doing like, quote unquote, like science for the people, um, this is a scientific field that is very open to participation um, and I think is kind of encouraging because it allows us to intervene and experiment um, in ways that most of the systems that are organized in our society do not. And, 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 and in that way, they encourage a lot of apathy uh, so, you know, essentially you, the listener or myself or any of us can just kind of go out and start doing this 
by just like connecting to an amateur network and getting on with it, uh, which is something that like, in terms of like adaptive solutions to the climate crisis or the civilizational crisis that we're in right now, um, is generally not the case. Right. And, 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 and so it's, it's very encouraging in that sense. And it's, it's very open and it doesn't, it does kind of uh, blast open our, uh, our perceptions of agency in uh, our current society as well, right? Like, yes, these things can be co-opted by capitalism, like we saw with that one firm that's that's patented everything and blah, blah, blah. But, like, you know, we can just kind of take the initiative and do this stuff, and hopefully the sort of um, peculiarities and diversities of the fungal world will help to... Uh, mitigate against capitalist homogenization capture and uh uh commodification um in a sense right so i don't know let's let's see what we can do with it right uh is kind of the message here yeah in the same way that like the fungi themselves seem to often be able to escape um our attempts to capture them like they're they kind of refuse to be domesticated um like, you know, the hyphal tips, they can just split in two and route around something, take two directions at once rather than getting trapped. Um, I think we could take a lot of inspiration from these things, you know. Um, they seem to live a happier life than we do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah they're, they're, they're prey, not necessarily so much, but they, they do, yes. <laughs> listening to General Intellectiness. While you wait for the next episode, you can find us on Twitter at GIUnitPod. You can find us on Facebook. We're on the internet at GeneralIntellectiness.net, and we're on all the podcast apps. If you'd like to support the show, help keep us alive, and get access to our community Discord, you can go to patreon.com slash GeneralIntellectiness and give us a couple of bucks a month. Every contribution is greatly appreciated. This show is part of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast network and research collective. Go to emancipation.network and check out our sister shows, such as From Alpha to Omega, Gemsuit Utopia, Swampside Chats, and Mortal Science. They're all excellent shows and excellent folks. As always, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this show, and we hope you'll join us again next time.